Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm thrilled to be joined by a fantastic giant of sitcom writing who is already uh, shrinking in embarrassment. Um, he is called Paul Mayhew Archer. Hello. Hello, Paul. Hello. For those of you who are amazingly unaware of Paul's uh, work, he has been a script guru um, and very kind mentor to me and um, over the years. Oh. He also gave Dave's first break in... Yeah, comedy writing? My, my first uh, commission, my first radio commission was from you uh, when you were oh. producing Weekending. Oh, my goodness. 1984. Oh, that is fantastic. Well, mm. well done. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, so, Paul has also written many sitcoms and scripted many sitcoms. He's also written and co-written quite a lot of The Vicar of Dibley, um, which is one of the great sitcoms of all time and was voted in the top ten... In fact, Second, it came only second only to Fools and Horses. No, it came right? third. Oh, I'm right. Only Fools and Blackadder. But when it got down to the last five, because I was amazed, I mean, we were amazed it was in the top ten. Really. Right. But when it got down to the last five, because um, there was a big Saturday night programme, I think. There was, yes, I remember. With Jonathan Ross hosting it. And he kept saying, well, Dibley will be out in the next go, because he obviously wasn't as big a fan <laughs> as some others. And, um, and anyway, it got down to the... The last five, and it was Only Fools, Blackadder, Dibley, uh, Dad's Army, and Faulty Towers. And I thought, oh, well, obviously Dibley will be going now because Faulty Towers and Dad's Army are two of the greatest programmes, let alone comedies, yeah. programmes yeah. ever made. And no! <laughs> <laughs> kept going. Um, kept yeah. going. There, you know, pushed Dad's Army and yeah. uh, Faulty, Faulty Towers out yeah. of the way. Which is, which is a which is quite an achievement. Uh, Faulty Towers is is a show obviously that comes up a lot on this mm. on this show. Um, you're never that far away from Faulty Towers uh, in mm. sitcom gigs, and it's it's probably referred to more than any other. Um, and I think it's annoying. And again, it comes up that there were not very many episodes of it. No. And I I my contention, which I've heard from someone else, is that well, there are only twelve episodes because they got divorced. And I don't know how you would feel about writing a sitcom with your ex-wife. Ah. Um, but is there something? There is something in that, isn't there? Do you know? Um, um, can you tell us more? Maybe. No, I can't tell you any more about that. I, um, I've, I've, um, I actually seem to get on very well with my collaborators. Mm. I found, um, and Richard Curtis as a collaborator is the nicest man in the world. Um, I have heard that. He he genuinely is, and what he has is a computer for a brain. Right. Because he has the ability to close down all other programmes mm. and just open the one programme that he needs. There are no pop-ups, no, nothing okay. interferes with it. So he w would say, when we were doing Dibley, uh, if we were during a lunch hour, during a rehearsal day, um, we knew there was a little bit on page 40 that needed sort of tinkering with. And he would say, right, I can give um, 13 minutes to that now. Right. And then I've got to go and make some phone calls. So for 13 minutes, that programme would open. Right. And every other programme would... And the Saving shut. the World yeah. programme would be shut yes, down for Yes, and, a moment, and yeah. after 13 minutes, you'd say, now, I really must go and ring Sting. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I must have a conversation with Gordon Brown because yeah. he's quite busy because he's prime minister. Yeah, yeah. and that sort <laughs> kind of, of puts, kind of puts the jokes into context. It sort yeah. of does. Well, yeah. let's well let's look at that then because one of the things that we talk about on this show is finding out what kind of writer you are, yes. and sometimes you define that against somebody else that you write with yeah. so in the case of me with writing with Richard Hurst I'm a good starter and I've come up with lots of ideas and Richard is the completer finisher who's good at picking the ideas ah. and then at the very end when I'm bored of it and I'm I'm basically happy that the show works yes he's very good at just seeing it through to granular detail to, to the edit oh. how did it work uh, with you and uh, Richard Curtis? well I would say I mean uh, my strengths are if my my strengths are not in creating characters, but my strength is possibly in taking a character, getting it, you know, if I'm given a character to play with, knowing how to play with it. Yeah. And knowing how to have... Sorry. How, no, that's all right. No, and no, no. knowing how to have fun with it. So 
Okay. I'm not a good creator of sitcoms. Mm -hmm. My experience has shown me, really. Because oh, really? Well, not, not, not necessarily. I remember there was a sitcom when I was still writing for Weekending, which... Uh, Nelson's Column, you actors, thinking of? Actors Life for oh. Me. Well, well you see, yeah. but there we go. I, so I, I created an Actors Life for Me, did all right on radio, went to television, uh, didn't quite get the audience figures axed after one series. Right. I mean, luckily for me didn't matter whether it got millions of viewers because it, it only needed one viewer because that one viewer happened to be Richard Curtis. Right. And he liked right. it enough to ask me to do Dibley. Well, that's ah. very but, but Nelson's yeah. column, um, two series, might have done some more, but it, it never really quite took off. Um, and then I did another one, which is completely forgotten now, called Office Gossip, which was, um, again, I, it, it just didn't... I thought it, I got very excited when I'd done it, yeah. and I thought this is this is terrific. And I, um, <laughs> I, I thought I'll read a preview, and so I went into the library, and I picked up the first paper I happened to pick up was the Financial Times, and I opened it, and it said uh, new sitcom. Uh, good news is this, this is by one of the co-writers of The Vicar of Dibley. The bad news is that the co-writer <laughs> is Paul Mayhew Archer, not Richard Curtis. I thought, I won't, I won't what, read any other reviews. <laughs> and then um, I think after two episodes had gone out, uh, a programme called The Office came out on BBC Two and oh, I suddenly right. realised <laughs> my programme was utterly dead in the water because right. it happened to be about a similar subject to one of the right. greatest comedies of all time. It was, I guess, creatively, it was happened to be on the wrong side of history. Yes, exactly. And you just happened to not know that. Yes, but I would Cause say... Because nobody, nobody knew that, did they? I mean, the, the, the show, no, the, the no, office no, was, no. even when it went out, the office, nobody cared. No. It was only really on the repeat. Well, it tends to, these tend to things tend to pop up out of nowhere, strangely. Mm. But I suppose, I mean, I think the thing is that with Dibley, Richard created it. He created these characters. I got the characters mm. and therefore I could write them. I, I didn't create my hero, but mm. I... I knew how to write episodes of my hero. I know how... I'm quite good at structure and jokes and jokes that are, that are right for the characters. Mm. What I'm not good at is creating those big, bold characters mm. that, that inhabit sitcoms. I mean, I, you know, the glory of Father Ted... or any of that... Well, the glory of a lot of Graham and Arthur's writing... Graham's writing is that... They push characters to the, the far edges of believability. Mm -hmm. and But there's just one toe in our world mm -hmm. so that we can recognise yeah. them and and empathise yeah. with them. And there's understand. enough heart yeah. there as well, isn't there's, there? And there's enough heart. And you've got to have heart in mm. these yeah. things, yes. Yeah. So anyway, that's what it is. I'm an episode writer. Yeah. I'm not a series creator. That's well, that's... And, and in a way, therefore, it's you, you were born in the wrong country. Um, yes, because, I should have been yeah. in America. Yes, yeah. and yes. You, you would have a you'd have a considerably bigger house if you lived in America. <laughs> yes, if you were able to write uh, mm. three hundred episodes of other people's shows. Yes, because it, so. On the other hand, I'm not that quick. Okay, right. so I think I might have struggled to write that many. And also, I'm I've never had the table writing experience. Right, of sitting there and I. And it rather scares me, I think. Really? Yes, because it's... I <clears throat> With Richard, we literally never sat down together to write. No. Really? We, we never wrote a single line together, really. Um, and I loved that because we swapped right. drafts. And that was fine. We had this rule that, you know, anything that writer A puts in, writer B takes out, only writer B can put it back in again. Okay, well, yeah. And um, and things like that, but but essentially we never sat down together, and I'm glad because Richard was is just quicker than I am, right? <laughs> and I'd have felt a bit inhibited. Well, he's only got thirteen minutes. He's only <laughs> yes. got thirteen minutes, and then he's got all these phone calls. Yeah. Whereas I mm. only have to, you know, my wife to ring up, right? Uh, and she's never in anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, but it, knowing yeah. knowing what sort of writer you are is though very important because presumably. You but you only learn it yeah, by doing it. by doing it and yeah. discovering. Oh, that's not not what I'm good at. Yeah. Is it? and at the start, you sort of have to be able to do everything, really, because we we don't really live in a world where you do write episodes of somebody else's no. show. No, I mean, strangely, in don't they, in America, your calling card to one sitcom is to write a 
a sample episode of another sitcom or something. That has been the case, and I think it's still a bit of a thing, but I yes. think even that now is starting to receive. I mean, I, I did spend a week, I was working on a pilot um, with uh, a chap called Dan O'Shannon, mm. who was, uh, you know, one of the yeah, Cheers, uh, yeah, Frasier, yeah. and yeah, now yeah. Modern Family. Really lovely, lovely man, but so terrifyingly quick. Right. You know, I mean, I would just be sitting with him and he, he, he would say, uh, we, could do, we could do with a better punchline here. And I'd be sort of picking up my pen <laughs> and he'd say, yeah, or this or, or, oh, how about this or, or this? And I think, well, any, any of those yes. would be perfectly serviceable, it seems to me. Seems <laughs> yeah. well, rude to pick one, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting that, uh, and, uh, you know, sometimes the writer that I, I work with, who's a very fast writer, and we, 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 um, we, we storyline the episode. Uh, yes. And uh, I think, all right, I'll go home and I'll write mine. I get home and open my laptop and he's already written his part. <laughs> Half part of the episode. Oh, wow, blimey! And um, but yeah, there, 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 there is obviously the, the, it, it's great to have that in a relationship, a writing relationship. Mm. The one who the splurger, as I call them. Yes. Uh, and then there's the tinkerer. Yes. Um, and I, 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 at different times, I'm the splurger or the tinkerer. So ah, you a, can be both. Uh, can you? Sometimes, sometimes I can splurge if I have to. But yes. yeah, I definitely get the tinkering but the, the thing you said about jokes was very very interesting because i because when i started writing weekending and so we uh, there's a turnover of producers and so uh in the first year of doing it i, I remember you, you one gets to know what different producers want yes. and uh i always knew with, with you it wasn't just uh jokes it was uh, the, the, the jokes had to be better quality jokes as well so you've all that that's always been a thing and then also i remember the first time I read notes about how to write sitcom, which must be about twenty years ago, I think the BBC produced a guide for uh, various well, probably people. Probably wrote it. Well, Fred Barron wrote some of it. Uh, Matt Lees and Martin Treneman wrote a little bit, right. and Simon Knight. And then there was your section, and and you know they they all wrote about and the character does this and the motivation and that. And then suddenly that Paul Mayhew Archer. The thing that I find that's often missing from sitcom is jokes. And it was a sort <laughs> yeah. of moment of like, you know, I spent so long working on this script idea here and thinking, what's this character? What's, mm. uh, what's it? What do they want and what do yeah. they get? And, 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 you, and it was like a sort of light bulb moment for me. Yes. It's just like, you are, to me, you are the man, uh, the, you are a joke man to me. Joke man. I, yeah. Well, I love, I love that in a way. I mean, it, it, they shouldn't be jokes that undermine the character. Mm. No. Or play that, against yeah. the character, but they can... And it's... Um, I remember there was a... Um, in, in Dibley, there was an episode where we... It was the episode where David's brother turns up, played by Clive Mantle. And she has a fling with him, and then he um, uh, dumps her. And the scene where he dumps her is actually quite a <clears throat> quite a serious scene. And I remember um, uh, Richard saying, "We just need a tickle of a joke here, just to remind everybody that we're still in a sitcom, mm. and we're not going into drama here." Yeah. And there was, and we sort of toyed with it anyway. And there was a line in which um, Dawn said, uh, "He said, I, I don't know. I, I, it's just not quite working. I, I don't know exactly what to say." And she says, um, "No, you do know what to say, but you're too much of a cowardly custard to say it." And she said that line. And as she said it, Richard said, "No, I've got it. I've got it." He was just brilliant at this sort of thing. He would say. He said, uh, say, uh, no, you do know, but you're too much of a custard of the cowardly, cowardly variety to say. And ju you see, yeah, yeah, yeah. it just rearranging the words right. yeah. suddenly yeah. brings new life into something mm. and gives it just that little hint of a joke. Mm. And it got precisely the right sort of little laugh mm. that just reminded us that, because it's about, it's about, it's, and it's partly about distance, isn't it? If you get too close to the reality of a situation, you go into drama. Yeah. And it's not quite 
you've you've gone out of the area that you're that the audience is expecting. Which is why I think single camera comedy, actually, now we're thinking about it, is really hard to get right because it is quite like real life. But the artifice of the studio sitcom is always going to remind you. Yes, there's, there's 300 not. people sitting there, and if they're not laughing for a, for two whole minutes, yes. you better be pretty sure you know what you're doing. Um, and yes. also, after that two minutes, they will be desperate to laugh. Yeah. And so, actually, quite often, you can push those drama moments. You can, and but and it and you sort of. It's a it's a it's a mystical thing. Mm. The 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 bit the thing where you can get an audience to to laugh and then to be emotionally moved a moment later. That's that's the essence of it, isn't it, really? And, um, I mean, I worked on Mrs Brown's Boys with, with Brendan O'Carroll, and he was absolutely the the master of that. I mean, he we would do a big scene which, you know, all sorts of rudeness and over-the-top sort of lunatic sort of stuff, and then he'd come off having done this very, very farcical scene. And I remember he said to me, he said, uh, you watch, a uh, minute from now, all the grannies will be crying. And so having done this hugely farcical scene, uh, the next scene is she's waiting for Christmas and she's very upset because, you know, the whole story has been about her son on the missions, wouldn't be able to come home. And then... Uh, Behind her enters the son from the missions because he's managed to get home, and you, you can hear yeah. you can hear the sort of <laughs> yeah. from the from the audience, and it's just extraordinary, extraordinary how he managed to do it. But then he he was is quite extraordinary. There, there was a moment. I don't know whether you've had this, but there is there is definitely a moment in things when you sort of know that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. I, I get that sense now when I see it. I, I knew it. I worked on the first series of Miranda. And there was a moment when she turns to... Cam- she's going into all of fluster because mm. of the, the, her, you know, the, the man she fancies has come back to run the, mm. the bar. And she gets into a fluster and, it com- and then she looks to camera and she goes, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm doing. And it's... It's a moment yeah. of such vulnerability yeah. and such sweetness and it echoed what so many of us feel about the yeah. relationships and how anxious and nervous we are. Mm. So I thought, oh, she's absolutely keying into yeah. what we, you know, um, we recognise as, yeah. as lovely. You know. And then, sorry, Can just you know. at the, with Mrs Brown's boys, the moment was... Halfway through the the pilot episode, he did something absolutely extraordinary because he'd never done it before because he hadn't done this in front of an audience before in this way. There was a moment where um, the son goes off and says, I don't don't know why you get involved in this. You know, you just cause trouble, Mammy. I don't know, you know, I don't know why you get involved. And he disappears and she looks after him. She looks... Mm. As he goes, and she says, "Because I'm your mammy," and the audience went, "Ah!" in that panto-style thing that audiences do. And he turned to the camera, as it were, to the audience, and said, "It's a man in a fucking dress." <laughs> Woof! The roof yeah. came off the studio, and then he turned away from the camera and looked after where his yeah. son had gone. And went, and they went ah again. The yeah. audience went, and I thought they're watching this. This is a very sophisticated. They're watching this on two completely different levels, and they're completely connected on yeah. both levels. And they're fine with it. And they're absolutely fine with I it. I mean, that's the equivalent of you know when they talk about amazing footballers who apparently have got the ball on a string. You know what I mean? It's like the ball is glued to their foot. Yes, that's somebody that's who exactly what he can do. Yeah, he's yes. you know, and he but. In a way, what he's understood then, which was what I think Miranda understood as well, is that the audience's capacity to buy into the character, which obviously Richard Curtis understands too, yes. is there is a very, very high capacity to want to love these characters. Yes. And we should do everything we can to enable that to happen. Yes. Um, well, in Dibley, in Dibley, the moment in the first episode, the moment that was 
when I read the read the first episode, uh, there was a moment when she she arrives mm. ten minutes in or eight minutes in, and uh, she says to David, "You're expecting a bloke with a beard, Bible, and bad breath, and instead you got a babe with a mm. bob 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 cut and, and magnificent bosom or something." <laughs> and I thought, that's there she is. Mm. Mm. Everything you want to know about her. Yeah. In one line, yeah, yeah, and about why where the tension is going to be, yeah. the fact she's proud of her magnificent bosom, yeah, yeah. and it's and this is so unlike any vicar you've ever seen before. I mean, it just is. It was yeah. just wonderful. At that moment, wonderful. you thought we're going to be fine, and I thought this is this is going to be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there there are two things uh, to follow up on that. One is is that sometimes it's still not fine. No, um, that's fine. but the other one is how we get. To, to that but let's let's go to the second one first because I remember you've you've told me about a few read-throughs you've been to and we've we've mentioned them on previous podcasts before such as uh Chalk yes. um uh, at Pete Sinclair's spoken about Mr Charity but also there was another show called Horrible um uh, with oh, yes. Johnny Vaughan, Johnny Vaughan yes. yeah. Ricky and, Grover and um I think I remember you saying at the time you went to some read-throughs and everyone could not believe how funny they were that's right. And everyone was completely convinced this was a huge comedy yes. success in the waiting. Yes. And when it came out, it was it was a disaster. Yes. Um, for which you are not responsible. I'm not, you know. But it is odd how sometimes you, you think you know and then it turns out you don't know. And this yeah. sort of dark art that we are yeah. trying to practice is extraordinary. Mm. And, and, and if I could actually, sorry, just come mm. back a little bit to the first point because it impacts on yes. this. You, you, you're sort of... You're being sort of quite modest here, and the people listening will think, "Oh, right, he was at Vicar of Dibley recordings or whatever." But you've been at so many hundreds and hundreds of audience sitcoms. I mean, you do you were script editing uh, two pints of lager, I think, weren't you? You were mm-hmm. certainly involved with my family, mm-hmm. uh, so and my yeah, hero as well. Uh, and so mm-hmm. you, you know, you're, you're, this is you're you're someone who who has spent a huge amount of your working life in the uh, environment of the audience sitcom and yes, even I you also, have I also no looked idea after um uh, well uh, helped to get drop the dead donkey and father ted on to a channel 4 right so you've so you've seen it work and yes, there are those, and, and there are those moments where you think it's going to be fine and then it isn't fine yes or, and the mystery is you know we com- when i was at channel 4 I, I was sort of script associate to Seamus Casty when he was the commissioning editor there and we commissioned um, not just Father Ted from Graham and Arthur, but also Paris. Right, yeah. And now yeah. you see, they both had enormous potential. I don't know what what, what went wrong with Paris. Well, um, Graham has subsequently, because we've spoken to Graham about Paris, ah. and so he has thoughts on why why it didn't go so well, um, which, which listeners can go back to and, and listen to. Um, and I think he's now slightly ashamed of how of how arrogant he and Arthur were in terms of not wanting to change the script and trying to sort of do too much in terms of the backdrops. Mm. And there are various... I think there are various very things... artificial. Yes. Yeah. Very self-consciously artificial. Yeah. They, they, they were... They were the kind of people who, when you say, here are the rules of comedy and mm. the rules are there to be broken. And they're the kind of people who turned up breaking all the rules... Yes first time around and then actually ah now in that process of learning then Mm. uh, would we have had father ted without the experience of learning from paris possibly not i i doubt if you look at the size of the cast of paris and then you look at father ted which is almost entirely four people one of whom barely says anything and the other whom is only ever says would you like a cup of tea Mm. so it's basically (laughs) uh compared to in the every Mm. scene in paris i remember 20 people mm. i remember jeff perkins who produced um uh father ted saying that because it started life as a Spoof documentary, I think it was a oh, yes, documentary. Yeah, yes, and he read the script for it, and he said the moment he knew there was something very special about this was the moment um, at the bottom of a page. Mrs. Doyle said, uh, "You'll have a cup of tea, Father," and he says, "No, thank you." And he turned the page, and the next page was, "No, you will have a cup of tea." <laughs> no, no, I really, you will, you will, you will, you will. And he thought, any writers who have the courage yeah. and the chutzpah to. The whole page. He <laughs> thought that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So how do how do we get to that point then? So you've you've seen a lot of shows go from 
you know, from the basic idea to the the pilot recording, but even just, you know, getting pulled off the pile and being taken seriously and speaking to lots of new writers, how, you know, how can our listeners benefit from from your wisdom on this? You know, what are the things that they should be? You've got some strong, for example, you've got some great advice on pilot scripts and what to do and what not to do. Yes. One of which is just watch the first episode of Cheers, which is... uh, Yes, watch the first episode. It's just about perfect, really. But what does that get right? Well, it gets... It gets a number of things right. It it um, it has a first scene that has nothing to do with the the rest of the episode, but is just simply funny. And it's I mean there was a very specific reason for that first scene. It's Sam Malone talking to a boy, it's a boy who's coming for a drink, pretending to be a Vietnam vet, and the and what the 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 reason they wrote that particular thing was to reassure viewers that although this was set in a bar it was not going to be irresponsible about drinking. So they had right. to show that he would not serve an underage customer. And having got that problem of having to show that, this is the solution. Brilliant solution. Mm. And so that's very funny. And then um, Diane comes in immediately after the opening titles. And it, 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 you find out the backstory of Sam and Diane as they tell each other very briefly about their backstory or yeah. rediscover. And what makes it funny is that neither of them is remotely interested in the other's backstory. She doesn't give a toss about the fact that he was a great ball player yeah. or anything. He is not remotely interested in, you know, literacy majors or yeah. anything like that. So you, you sense there's a complete um, separation of interests between the two, and yet there's clearly a sort of physical attraction yeah. there. And then they, um, the, the plot is, is very cleverly devised. And at the end of the episode, there's, a, there's an absolutely breathtakingly clever moment because she, there's a bit where she has, um, she, he offers her a job just after there's, there's been a huge order of drinks come in from the one of the customers and so he sam says well you could work here because she's just been chucked by this you know her professor and um she says what on earth makes you think i could possibly work in a place like this at which point the the customer says could we have our drinks please and sam says yes sorry i can't remember and she reels off this whole list of drinks and with a sense as she does so of horror realising, oh, my God, this is the job I was made to do. Yeah. And, it's that, and that creates a tension for the, the whole series because mm. it's a woman who thinks she's so much better than this, but actually this is... She's not. But, she's and she's not. fighting it all and the way. she's fighting she it all the way. And it's just um, brilliant. Hello, James here. Sorry to cut in. Hope you're enjoying this really special interview for both Dave and I with a man who's not just a living legend in sitcom writing, but someone who's been a mentor in some ways to both of us. There's more to come in a moment. And actually, there's a lot more for Patreon subscribers. Another half hour of chat with Paul about sitcom theory and anecdotes that are well worth your time and your monthly contribution. You can access that and a load of other exclusive content if you join us on Patreon where we go through uh, subscribers' first 10 pages of their scripts um, and other interviews are uh, put up there that are just for subscribers. So do please consider that. We're going back to being fortnightly podcasts, so to get your weekly fix, that's the way to do it. Even a dollar a month helps keep us afloat. But if you can manage more, then that would be great. And there are much more benefits as well, also including our uh, copies of our books and that sort of thing. And also you can come and say hello to us at the Leicester Comedy Festival on the 14th of February where we'll be recording an episode in front of a live audience. And you can be in that audience. We have a special guest. We will, be, we will by then anyway. And check our Facebook page or Twitter feed for who that is and how to get tickets. Have a look for links in the show notes. Uh, we're going back to our interview with Paul in a moment. But do you know that uh, you can see him in person because he's going on tour 
with a show called Incurable Optimist, which is a reference to the fact that he has Parkinson's and he's doing a very good job of seeing the funny side as well as raising awareness and money um, for that cause. But anyway, his tour starts in London on March the 19th and ends in Oxford on June the 7th and he spans the nation going from Glasgow and Edinburgh to Hastings and Brighton via Bristol, Bath, Chipping, Norton, Tiverton, Leicester, Cambridge, Colchester, Norwich, New Milton in the New Forest, Otley and Selby, Newcastle, Hexham and Barnard Castle in the northeast, as well as Liverpool and Chorley. That's a gig near the vast majority of our UK listeners at least, I'm sure. That's the incurable optimist and he has a website with all those details, mayhew-archer.com, mayhew-archer.com. He says um, there are only four Mayhew Archers on the planet, so if you Google Mayhew Archer, you're bound to find me. Well, that's what he says. Let's get back to more of what he's saying in that interview. In terms of giving yourself a best chance to get that pilot script together, because if you're if you're writing a script, so if you if you're if you don't have much of a track record, you are going to have to write a script yes. and you are going to have to send it to someone. Right. Having, having read a lot of scripts, yes. What what are you saying are the mistakes that people have made since time immemorial? Well, what you have to do is you. I mean, the 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 first thing, the essence of it is, um, you've got to have something on page one which makes people want to read page two. It's just simple, like I mean, and it's got to be a joke or something that's like if it's a comedy, it might as well be a joke, mightn't it? Yeah, that'd be good. And you'd um, that. but yeah. the thing is, I remember Asher Teller doing The Office, and he said, um, if the choice is between a bad joke or no joke at all on page one, go for no joke at all mm. every time because a bad joke will really put people... And I would add to that, if by page eight you're still going for the no joke at all option, <laughs> yeah. you're probably not yeah. writing a sitcom, yeah. and that may not be your strength. Yeah. Yeah. Or so, your setup, or, or your, your characters might your, not be right. No, and the... Um, it's, so that would be my, my, my first hmm. thing, I suppose. Um, also, you don't... It's important not to feel that you have to tell everybody everything about the characters hmm. in episode one. Yeah. It's, it can grow on, grow on us. In fact, um, I remember um, with One Foot in the Grave... Has anyone else spoken about this? No. Yeah. One Foot in the Grave... Um, at the end of the second series of One Foot in the Grave, it's the first episode, I think, that they ever did in real time, and it's in their bedroom. And he's finding life difficult, and, you know, there's all sorts of problems. He can't get to sleep. And eventually, she says something about a child, and she talks about the child they had that never came out of hospital. Mm, yes, yes, I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, that's why he's such a sad, miserable, angry man, because he's surrounded by idiots, and the one perfect human being never came out of hospital. Right. And I spoke to Susie Belbin, the producer, about it, and I said, when did David get the idea? Did he always know this was in the background? She said, no, I think he just thought of it when he wrote that episode. And I think you can. I mean, there are two different schools of thoughts. Uh, Lawrence and Morris, Morris and Grant, they will, you know, they have a Bible. They know, mm. I think they know pretty well everything about their characters, and that's fine. And others, uh, David um, on One Foot in the Grave, you know, didn't know everything. Uh, on Dibley, we have no idea what really she got up to yeah. before she came to We to quote Dibley. you many times for, the, for that very reason on this podcast. We do say backstory is death. And that I have said that... Exposition. Yeah. That, yes, you've you've said to me that what, what did Geraldine do before she arrived in Dibley? Answer, don't know. Don't know. And it could be anything. And it, But if we had a plot, mm. if suddenly there was a reason for putting it into a story that, mm. that what she did was such and such and somebody's suddenly come to challenge her about it or yeah. to bring it up... Then it's there was somebody from her past, wasn't there? It was the fact that was Clive Mantle, wasn't it? Was that no? It so was somebody. Day, no, there was another person who'd been at she'd yes, been at Vicar Factory. Yes, with, I think there were various yeah. references. But overall, it it was still slightly neither here nor there. Yes, it didn't really matter, and it it's not sort of hugely important, yeah. really. But if there'd been a plot, mm. so if you if you knew that she had a terror of exams, mm. 
and there was a driving test coming up, then that would be a way of bringing yeah. in something from the background. That, that I, I remember an episode of Steptoe um, where um, the sort of long-lost Australian brother suddenly turned up who had never been mentioned before. Yes. And uh, Harold didn't know about him. And, and obviously Albert hadn't... And, and, and Ray know, and Alan probably obviously never exactly knew about Ray him. Ray <laughs> suddenly thought, OK, well, he's got a, he's got a long-lost... Well, yeah, but come on, how do you explain? Well, Albert's not going to tell, is he? You know? yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah he, had, you know, he had a fling. Yes. A few years before uh, he married uh, Harold's mum. You know, he's got a child... That he said, well, maybe he, I can't remember, maybe he even he didn't know about it himself. So yeah. uh, it just, just came out of nowhere. But within the context, and it's kind of just what you were saying about the one foot in the grave story, mm. is that actually, and that is that is the sort of thing that people don't talk about. And you can mm. completely believe two series in that actually the first time this comes up is, to, is you know, two, two years after we met the mm. characters. Because people do not talk about that stuff. Yeah. Well, it's like real life. We don't yeah. know everything about, and we sort True. of discover things about people that we absolutely we never knew. So yeah. we're just m- mimicking. And when we, and actually, when we're saying that somebody is doing something that seems completely out of character, it's like, well, actually, maybe you don't know them as well as you think you did. Yes. Rather than people, people yes. tend not to act out of character. Yeah. Unless they are, you know, uh, ill in some way. Um, but actually, it's very much a question of just finding things that push them forward and finding out what they want, yes. rather than where they've come from, which is not terribly interesting. That's that's true. Well, it seems, why is it so interesting to writers though? Because why we read so many, so, so we have a thing where people can send us their first ten pages. Yes. So <clears throat> if you're listening and you're a Patreon subscriber, for example, mm. you send us your first ten pages and we'll read them and do a little Patreon-only podcast that only Patreon subscribers can hear. And the number of times we get to page 10 and basically nothing has happened um, seems to be a really common problem, no matter what we say about it. Mm. Because things never... I don't think we've ever... We've only maybe once or twice had to say, wow, this is moving fast and I think you've not explained it terribly well. It's always, can someone please do something? An inciting incident. Yes, and rather, like rather than just talk about it. Yes. I wonder why that is. I don't know why we're sort of waggle on the teeth so I d- much. I don't know, and yet, you know, um, nothing ever happened in the royal family. No. And yet it sort of didn't seem to matter. Yeah, but it's the, the, the thing, I think people mistake sometimes the, uh, you know, the thing happening is, well, obviously it's the royal family. You're not going to have uh, suddenly a, a gunman's going to come in and mm. take people hostage in the first five minutes. True, but you are going to have... Somebody needs to have a a, a pie baked by yes. by the end of the episode, or someone something else is going to get into mm. trouble. So it's, it, it's mistaking the idea that the story has to be a big thing. Yes, uh, it's, that's, it's that's uh, I think Kurt Vonnegut. Well, I remember when he talks about short stories, and he said that in his class somebody came up with a story about. Uh, um, a nun flossing her teeth or something, mm. and and would she get the bit out that that um, everyone else yes. had seen and she hadn't seen, and that was just that was the story, and it was but to a, her, to her, that, yeah, that and was to the her, crisis. To, well, to the audience, it was like, hey, come on, come on, yes. what's she going to do? Yes. It's the audience who are going, yeah, what's going to happen? Yeah, and that's yeah. the uh, that I think maybe people miss that sometimes. Yeah. So in terms of what what notes have you, because you must have given so many notes over the years as a producer, as a script editor. Um, well, shall I talk about hierarchy? Please do. Yes, please. Yes. Well, the when, when they did the first series of Blackadder, it didn't really work, I think. I think we're all agreed on that. Because there was a sort of confusion about mm. what Rowan Atkinson's role was, who Blackadder was, who Baldrick was. Mm. Some amazingly funny lines. Some absolutely fantastic lines, mm. some wonderful set pieces. But, but less than really... the sum total of the parts. Yes. Mm. So, um, what they did when they solved it was that they, because Rowan wanted to play a variety of, of personas, as it were, within the piece. Oh, and different, you know, to be sort of bullying, but also to be subservient and sort of um, weak and yet to be strong. And they hadn't clarified how he could do it. But in the second series, mm. by putting him in the middle of a hierarchy right. where he had to be incredibly servile 
um, yes. to, and suck up to the queen and melt it, because otherwise he'd get his head chopped off. Yeah. But at the same time, he could go back to his rooms and be horribly bullying. And kick down. And kick down, exactly. Mm. In the same way that Basil Fawlty yes. is terrified of Sybil, but takes it out on Manuel and yes. Pollock. So if you put your character in the middle of a, of a hierarchy, you can, um, you can allow that central character to play a variety of roles mm. and yet not That's seem... Really- that's mm. really interesting, and and, and it's it's true of Dibley yeah. as well because she can be. She's sort of she can control things with with Alice. Her, you know, we would go from the Alice thing, to then her with the the committee where she basically had you know didn't control things as yeah. it were, and it was um, th- th- those two different worlds colliding. Um, That's interesting. So yeah, it's a mixture of hierarchy and just sort of. And it's, spheres of influence, or yes, just just try and just try and place the central character somewhere in the middle, as it were, you know, um, because Mannering, even Mannering was, even though he was the captain, he would be undermined by Sergeant Wilson mm. at times, or there would be someone above, yes, who would sort of come down. Well, the and, the, the warden, the church, is it, yeah, there, there was, that the, was the, yes, the constant the rivalry yeah, with think, the constant, yeah. and it was. I mean, it, the important. Um, I mean, characters are very important, and mm. so are relationships mm. are very important. As, and it's those key things that you have that, that you have to think about and get right. Well, I think um, the hierarchy thing, though, that's this is a, a very exciting and a new thought. And why didn't you tell me this before? <laughs> um, it's in my note. I'm sure it's in my okay. note. Okay. Yeah. No, it probably is. Um, but yeah, so the idea that you have a character in... Because I think sometimes sitcom characters can feel two-dimensional, but the moment yeah. they have to play two different roles it makes them much more interesting, doesn't it? Because yes. the fact that he is a coward as far as the Queen is concerned in Blackadder, yes. and then he goes home and he takes it out on yes. Baldrick, yes. makes him... And Baldrick thinks he's a hero and thinks he's wonderful, of course. Yes, yeah, so as Percy in particular yes. does as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and uh, but at the same time, we in a way that gives them a humanity because if he was only one of those things, if he was just a coward and a lackey, we yes. wouldn't we wouldn't love him. And if he no. was just a bully, we also wouldn't probably love no. him. But the no. fact that we kind of kind of sympathise. Well, with... we're 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 looking at a man who is remarkably cruel, but incredibly funnily cruel to people. Mm. But then, at the same time, you know, five minutes later, is in danger of losing his life. Yeah, unless he says the right. Thing. There was a Just context of cruelty, which in yeah. some senses we, he, we forgive him that cruelty. Yeah. Yes, we? in the same way, you know, Basil uh, in 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 mm. uh, sorry in, da, in Dad no in oh, Dad's, Dad's army. army yeah. I think, you know, um, however incompetent they are and, and stupid, and however pompous and irritating Mannering is, at the back of it all, we know that he would lay down his mm. life for his yeah. country. Yeah, and therefore we love it. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a review of Dad's Army by Alan Corran ah. from about 1976, which uh, which which actually says about says that's the point about however ridiculous these people are. We know that that they, they were, were yes. that they were prepared to die yes. for the country. And the reason Mrs. Brown's boys um, has humanity about it, even though it's ludicrously over the top and the, and she behaves appallingly to her children. It's ultimately about motherhood. Mm. And it goes right to the heart of, you know, she would die for any of her children. Mm. In the same, and in fact, of course, what um, he discovered when he did Who Do You Think You Are? Did you see that? Yes, I did. It was quite astonishing, wasn't it? Was discovering that his grandfather had died for one of his children because he refused to say where the children, you know, his sons were. Yeah, and then the um, Secret Service shot him. It was a really amazing episode. It was. It was quite something. So, uh, so yeah. it's uh, yeah. yeah, and that's at the heart of Mrs. Brown's boys. So, so however irreverent it is, however rude it is, the reason I think audiences part of the reason the audiences embrace it, and particularly older grannies embrace mm. it, is because it's about motherhood. Yeah. And I think therefore. 
going back to I think our very first podcast we where we say what's it about and what's it really about yes you, you do sort of need to know what your sitcom is really about yes. because it, it's not it's not a sitcom about a family it's a sitcom about a relationship or a thing and you sort of need to know and you may discover that it isn't actually quite about what you thought it was about but if you have no clue as to what it's about I think you're you're in big trouble. Yes. I mean, the... Um, uh, well, as far... I used to call Dibley the sound of music without the songs. Right. Because, basically, there was this um, rather strict captain who was the chair of the Paris Council. Yes. David Horton, who ruled the roost, and he ruled everything. And these were all his children on the committee, and Alice was a, was yeah. a, a child... And then along comes this nun, or vicar in our case, who transforms the village and liberates the children to be as mad as they want to be and just, you know, put on silly clothes and do all sorts of silly things. And and then eventually the captain, or David, Mm. the chair of the parish council, falls in love with her. But, of course, in our version, she's too sensible to, Mm. to marry him. Shall I tell you the story? The strangest script I ever got. Please do. And there was a, when I was in radio, a man sent me a script and said, um, I've decided to have a, a go at writing a sitcom, and I'd be most, I'm sending you two sample scenes, so do tell me if you think I have it in me to write a sitcom, as that is my you know, greatest ambition. The, the background to this sitcom is about a miner and a policeman who's on picket line duty. Um, and uh, the miner is knocked unconscious by the policeman and then love develops. <laughs> and I thought, oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so I read Romeo, scene, Romeo scene one. Scene one. Uh, policeman enters uh, uh, hospital. I've come to see the injured miner. Uh, yes, uh, he's in uh, Ward C, first bed on the left. Thank you very much. End of scene one. Scene two. Uh, <laughs> hey, lad, uh, you don't look so grand lying there. No, well, that were a pretty bad blow you caught me. Aye, lad, uh, but looking at you now lying there, I start to see things differently. Aye, lad, well, so do I. End of sample dialogue. So, so I wrote back to him and I said, well, it's... It's 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 interesting and unusual, um, and uh, but it, it possibly needs some, something to, you know that reminds us that, that it is a sitcom, you know, like jokes. Yeah. And mm. uh, it's, so anyway, two weeks later, I got it back again. It's, oh. uh, so a policeman goes into hospital. Um, uh, can you tell me where the injured miner is? Uh, Yes, I, I can. Uh, by the way, have you heard the one about the... Uh, <laughs> and the two scenes contained two, two jokes. jokes. And he said he was desperate to know whether I thought he had it in him to write a sitcom. So I said, in all honesty, yeah. um, I think you're more a drama writer. <laughs> I thought he's going to send it. Um, and that so, man was Jed Mercurio. And so, yes, it was, and it turned into bodyguard. Yeah. But anyway, he said, um, so I heard nothing for six months, and then I got this, it back again, and he said, I, I, um, I took some time to read through your letter, and then I realised that what you were saying between the lines was that our country is not yet ready for a piece, a sitcom about such a subject. Um, this was during Thatcher, yeah, yeah, obviously the minor strike, and so I have rewritten it as an entirely serious piece. And it said, uh, um, "Policeman enters the hospital. Uh, can you tell me where the injured miner is? Uh, yes, he's in uh, Ward C. Uh, we we can't afford to keep most of it open, but uh, because of the cutbacks, but he's in the first bed on the left. So he go." Policeman says to the miner, um, Hey, lad, you don't look so good lying there. Get away from me, you fascist pig. <laughs> you, you fascist... Um, uh, and the policeman says, Oh, lad, I'm so sorry. And the miner says, No, 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 lad. It's just that they can't afford to give me the painkillers anymore. I shouldn't have gone on at you. <laughs> and that was very funny, that. <laughs> 
but it was an extraordinary. Yeah. Um, well, actually, that's, that's yeah. the problem with being staff at the BBC. Mm. You have to patiently re- read, read all these. Yeah. But at least he was only going. To, he was only sending, you know, two two scenes. Yeah. But this does actually remind me of one thing. And I may have mentioned this when we interviewed um, John Lloyd. But when I was before I was a comedy writer, and I was a journalist in South Wales at mm. the time of the, the Falklands War, <laughs> and um, was. Uh, but one of the few uh, sort of light moments of light relief for me was listening to Week Ending around the time of the Falklands War and at the time James Hendry was doing this very funny stuff about the 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 Patriot family and they had the bingo the the dog the racist dog or something and 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 I thought oh this is marvellous and I tried writing some jokes for weekending this was in 1982 and I just I didn't know what I was doing but I just wrote a few lines and typed them up in my journalist office and posted them to weekending uh, and then I listened to the show and they didn't go out and thought nothing more of it and then about five days later I got a, a letter back um, from the producer Paul Mayhew Archer of Weekending with my script and written very neatly and uh, just said yes the, sorry this isn't this isn't the sort of format for the, for the show but this is good, uh, this is a good this is this is a good joke that's a good joke that isn't a, that doesn't work that's a good joke that's a good joke and I, and it was uh, just a, and I thought oh wow this is what happens then. You write to someone and the producer writes back to you. The actual producer of the show writes back oh. and gives you notes. And that sort of gave me the confidence to really? think, oh, I could go and I could become a writer. And I oh. thought, oh, and it's great because whenever you send a script somewhere, the producer <laughs> gets back to you. <laughs> and so it was in a, probably, a way, you were a kind yeah. man, but also a very yeah. cruel man yeah. because you raised because expectations. Probably another 20 years before <laughs> another, another producer. Reply. Yeah. Oh, so, dear. Uh, well, so that's a very uh, a double-edged sword on which to end our uh, our interview. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, I'm particularly struck by that hierarchy stuff that you were talking about and thinking, I don't quite know why I've not seen that or thought about that much before. So I've learnt a lot. Um, and also, I have other stories I could share about how kind you've been uh, to me and helping me in my career. Um, but I won't bore you with the details. And you, you were there, so you remember. And I'm very grateful. But our listeners, I'm sure, will be very grateful too. So um, thank you very much for being with us, Paul, and yes, for being a generally all round good egg. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been uh, a delight. And uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, guys, and speak to you again sometime soon. Bye bye. Bye.